Hello, this is R.J. Deacon reading the Supreme Court of the United States opinion in Bobby James Moore v. Texas on petition for writ of certiorari to the Court of Criminal Appeals of Texas, decided February 19th, 2019. This is a per curiam opinion, and it has no syllabus, uh, but it's only about 10 pages, so we're just going to go ahead and read it. In 2015, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals held that petitioner Bobby James Moore did not have intellectual disability and consequently was eligible for the death penalty. Ex parte Moore. 1. We previously considered the lawfulness of that determination and vacated the appeals court decision and remanded the case for further consideration of the issue. Moore v. Texas, 2017. The appeals court subsequently reconsidered the matter, but reached the same conclusion. Ex parte Moore, Texas Criminal Appeals 2018, and Ex parte Moore 2. We again review its decision, and we reverse its determination. When we first heard this case in Moore, we noted that the state trial court, a state habeas court, received affidavits and hearsay testimony from Moore's family members former counsel, and a number of court-appointed mental health experts. We described the evidence as revealing the following. Moore had significant mental and social difficulties beginning at an early age. At 13, Moore lacked basic understandings of the days of the week, the months of the year, and the seasons. He could scarcely tell time or comprehend the standards of measure or the basic principle that subtraction is the reverse of addition. At school, because of his limited ability to read and write, Moore could not keep up with lessons. Often, he was separated from the rest of the class and told to draw pictures. Moore's father, teachers, and peers called him stupid for his slow reading and speech. After failing every subject in the ninth grade, Moore dropped out of high school. Cast out of his home, he survived on the streets, eating from trash cans, even after two bouts of food poisoning. On the basis of this and other evidence, the trial court found that Moore had intellectual disability and thus was ineligible for the death penalty under Atkins v. Virginia. The Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reversed that dis determination, ex parte Moore 1, and we reviewed its decision in Moore. At the outset of our opinion, we recognized as valid the three underlying legal criteria that both the trial court and appeals court applied. To make a finding of intellectual disability, a court must see one, deficits in intellectual functioning, primarily a test-related criterion, see DSM-5 at 37. Two, adaptive deficits assessed using both clinical evaluation and individualized measures. And three, the onset of these, these deficits while the defendant was still a minor. With respect to the first criterion, we wrote that Moore's intellectual testing indicated that his was a borderline case, but that he had demonstrated sufficient intellectual functioning deficits to require consideration of the second criterion, adaptive functioning. With respect to the third criterion, we found general agreement that any onset took place when Moore was a minor. But, 
There was significant disagreement between the state courts about whether Moore had the adaptive deficits needed for intellectual disability. In determining the significance of adaptive deficits, clinicians look to whether an individual's adaptive performance falls two or more standard deviations below the mean in any of the three adaptive skill sets, conceptual, social, and practical. Based on the evidence before it, the trial court found that Moore's performance fell roughly two standard deviations below the mean in all three categories. Reversing that decision, the appeals court held that Moore had not proven by a preponderance of the evidence that he possessed the requisite adaptive deficits and thus was eligible for the death penalty. Ex parte Moore won. We disagreed with the appeals court's adaptive functioning analysis. However, and identified at least five errors. That, however, didn't seem necessary, uh, but it's in there. Uh, first, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals overemphasized Moore's perceived adaptive strengths. But the medical community, we said, focuses the adaptive functioning inquiry on deficits. Second, the appeals court stressed Moore's improved behavior in prison. But clinicians caution against reliance on adaptive strengths developed in a controlled setting, as a, person sh as a prison surely is, quoting DSM-5 at 38. Third, the appeals court concluded that Moore's record of academic failure, childhood abuse, and suffering detracted from a determination that his intellectual and adaptive deficits were rel related. But in the medical community, those traumatic experiences are considered risk factors for intellectual disability. AAAIDD 11 at 59 and 60. Fourth, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals required more to show that his adaptive deficits were not related to a personality disorder. But clinicians recognize that the existence of a personality disorder or mental health issue is not evidence that a person does not also have intellectual disability. Fifth, the Texas Fifth, the appeals court directed state courts when examining adaptive deficits to rely upon certain factors set forth in a Texas case called Ex parte Brasino. The Brasino factors were whether those who knew the person best during the developmental stage thought of him as mentally retarded, whether he could formulate plans and carry them through, whether his conduct showed leadership whether he showed a rational and appropriate response to external stimuli, whether he could answer questions coherently and rationally, whether he could hide facts or lie effectively, and whether the commission of his offense required forethought, planning, and complex execution of purpose. We criticized the use of these factors both because they had no grounding in prevailing medical practice and because they invited lay perceptions of intellectual disability and lay stereotypes to guide assessment of intellectual disability. Emphasizing the Brasino factors over clinical factors, we said, creates an unacceptable risk that persons with intellectual disability will be executed. While our decisions in Atkins and Hall left to the states the task of developing appropriate ways to enforce the restriction on executing the intellectually disabled, a court's intellectual disability determination must be informed by the medical community's diagnostic framework. 
Three members of this court dissented from the majority's treatment of Moore's intellectual functioning and with aspects of its adaptive functioning analysis, but all agreed about the impropriety of the Brasino factors. As the Chief Justice wrote in his dissenting opinion, the Brasino factors were an unacceptable method of enforcing the guarantee of Atkins, and the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals therefore erred in using them to analyze adaptive deficits. For the reasons we have described, the court set aside the judgment of the appeals court and remanded the case for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion, or that opinion. On remand, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals reconsidered the appeal and reached the same basic conclusion, namely, that Moore had not demonstrated an intellectual disability, ex parte Moore too. The court again noted the three basic criteria, intellectual functioning deficits, adaptive deficits, and early onset. But this time, it focused almost exclusively on the second criterion, adaptive deficits. The court said that in doing so, it would abandon reliance on the Brasino evidentiary factors. It would instead use current medical diagnostic standards set forth in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5. In applying those standards to the trial court record, it found the state's expert witness, Dr. Christy Compton, far more credible and reliable than the other experts considered by the trial court. As in our last opinion, we neither second nor second guess that judgment, and, as we have said, it reached the same conclusion it had before. Moore has now filed a petition for certiori in which he argues that the trial court record demonstrates his intellectual disability. He asks us to reverse the appeals court's contrary holding. Petition for cert 2. The prosecutor, the prosecutor, the district attorney of Harris County, agrees with the petitioner that he is intellectually disabled and cannot be executed. Brief in opposition 9. The American Psychological Association, American Bar Association, and various individuals have also filed amicus curiae briefs supporting the position of Moore and the prosecutor. Brief for APA as amicus curiae, brief for ABA as amicus curiae, brief for Donald B. Ayer as amicus curiae. The Attorney General of Texas, however, has filed a motion for leave to intervene and asks us to deny Moore's petition. Motion for leave to intervene as a respondent. After reviewing the trial court record and the Court of Appeals opinion, we agree with Moore that the appeals court's determination is inconsistent with our opinion in Moore. We have found, in its opinion, too many instances in which, with small variations, it repeats the analysis we previously found wanting and these same parts are critical to its ultimate conclusion. For one thing, the Court of Appeals again relied less upon adaptive deficits to which the trial court had referred than upon Moore's apparent adaptive strengths. The appeals court discussion of Moore's communication skills does not discuss the evidence relied upon by the trial court, ex parte Moore too. That evidence includes the young Moore's inability to understand and answer family members, even a failure on occasion to respond to his own name. Its review of Moore's reading and writing refers to deficits only in observing that, in prison, Moore progressed from being illiterate 
to being able to write a, at a seventh grade level. At, uh, but the trial court heard, among other things, evidence that in school, Moore was made to draw pictures when other children were reading, and that by sixth grade, Moore struggled to read at a second grade level. <clears throat> Instead, the appeals court emphasized Moore's capacity to, to communicate, read, and write, based in part on pro se papers Moore filed in court. That evidence is relevant, but lacks convincing strength without a determination about whether Moore wrote the papers on his own, a finding that the Court of Appeals declined to make. Rather, the court dismissed the possibility of outside help. Even if other inmates composed these papers, it said Moore's ability to copy such documents by hand was within the realm of only a few intellectually disabled people. Similarly, the Court of Appeals stressed Moore's coherent testimony in various proceedings, but acknowledged that Moore had a lawyer to coach him in all but one. As for that proceed hearing, the court observed that Moore read letters to the record without any apparent difficulty. For another thing, the Court of Appeals relied heavily on upon adaptive improvements made in prison. It concluded that Moore has command of elementary math, but its examples concern trips to the prison commissary, commissary purchases, and the like. It determined that Moore had shown leadership ability in prison by refusing on occasion to mop up some spilled oatmeal, shave, get a haircut, or sit down. And, as we have said, it stressed correspondence written in prison. The length and detail of the court's discussion on these points is difficult to square with our caution against relying on prison-based development. Further, the Court of Appeals concluded that Moore failed to show that the cause of his deficient social behavior was related to any deficits in general mental ability rather than emotional problems. But in our last review, we said that the Court of Appeals had departed from clinical practice when it required Moore to prove his problems in kindergarten stemmed from his intellectual disability, rather than emotional problems. And we pointed to an amicus brief in which the APA explained that a personality disorder or mental health issue is not evidence that a person does not also have intellectual disability. Finally, despite the Court of Appeals' statement that it would abandon reliance on the Brasino evidentiary factors, it seems to have used many of those factors in reaching its conclusion. Thus, Brasino asked whether the offense required forethought, planning, and complex execution of pur purpose. The Court of Appeals wrote that Moore's crime required a level of planning and forethought. Observing that Moore wore a wig, concealed the weapon, and fled after the crime. Brasino asked whether the defendant could respond coherently, rationally, and on point to oral and written questions. The Court of Appeals found that Moore responded rationally and coherently to questions. And Brasino asked whether the defendant's conduct shows leadership or that he is led around by others. The Court of Appeals wrote that Moore's refusal to mop up some spilled oatmeal and other such behavior showed that he influences others and stands up to authority. Of course, clinicians also ask questions to which the Court of Appeals statements might be relevant. C-A-A-I-D-D-11 at page 44, noting that how a person follows rules obeys, and obeys laws can bear on assessment of 
her social skills, but the similarity of language and content between Brasino's factors and the Court of Appeal statements suggests that Brasino continues to pervasively infect the appeals court's analysis. To be sure, the Court of Appeal's opinion is not identical to the opinion we considered in Moore. There are sentences here and there suggesting other modes of analysis consistent with what we said, but there are also sentences here and there suggesting reliance upon what we earlier called lay stereotypes of the intellectually disabled. Compare ex parte more to finding evidence that Moore had a girlfriend and a job as tending to show he lacks intellectual disability. With AAIDD11 at 151, criticizing the incorrect stereotypes that persons with the intellectual disability never have friends, jobs, spouses, or children, and brief for the APA as amicus curiae, it is estimated that between 9 and 40% of persons with intellectual disability have some form of paid employment. We conclude that the appeals court opinion, when taken as a whole, and when read in light of both our prior opinion and the trial court record, rests upon analysis, too much of which too closely resembles what we previously found improper. And extricating that analysis from the opinion leaves too little that might warrant reaching a different conclusion than did the trial court. We consequently agree with Moore and the prosecutor that on the basis of the trial court record, Moore has shown he is a person with an intellectual disability. The petition for certiori is granted. The Attorney General of Texas's motion to intervene is denied. We have considered that filing as an amicus brief. The judgment of the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals is reversed, and the case is remanded for further proceedings not inconsistent with this opinion. Again, that was a per curiam opinion, and uh, if you'd like to get a hold of the podcast, the uh, email is rhodesscholar80 at gmail.com. That's R-O-A-D-S and 8080. Thank you.